What I want to talk about today is difficult relationships and how we handle them. And I know this can be particularly challenging given our context at the moment where we're in lockdown and speaking to people remotely. And I'll try and bear that in mind as I bring it into land towards the end. A few years ago, I found myself at a conference listening to a clinical psychologist and leadership coach called Dr. Henry Cloud. He was launching his new book called Necessary Endings, which is a really good book that I found really helpful and would recommend to you. In that book and in the talk at the conference, while admitting that it could be interpreted as somewhat simplistic, he pointed out that in the Bible, people fall into effectively three categories. There are people the Bible describes as wise, there are people the Bible describes as foolish, and there are people that the Bible describes as evil. Now, in the context that we're talking about, evil may not be a very helpful way of thinking about it. Maybe substitute the word toxic for evil. But he explained what he meant by each of those three different categories. A wise person is someone who, when you give them feedback, listens to it, considers it, weighs it up carefully, and makes any necessary adjustments in their behaviour or the way in which they speak. When you give somebody who is wise, honest and clear feedback, your relationship with them is strengthened. They assume that you care for them, and they don't deny, deflect or minimise how their behaviour or attitudes is affecting you. A foolish person, however, responds a bit differently. Now, being foolish is not the opposite of being smart or intelligent or clever. In fact, because somebody is kind or gifted or talented or charming, you continue to hope that the feedback that you're giving them might enable them to change. But when you give them feedback, for example, when you said that in that meeting, this is how it made me feel, or this is what it's like to be on the other side of you, well, a foolish person responds quite differently to a wise person. They become defensive. They blame other people. They blame events or circumstances or even you, things outside of, out with their control. Giving a foolish person honest feedback doesn't strengthen the relationship. In fact, it creates a distance between you and them. If you give foolish people feedback, they will make excuses. They perhaps will react angrily or try and close the conversation down or even end the relationship with you and have little awareness of how their behaviour or attitudes are affecting you or other people. But it's the third category that actually takes us by surprise. As I say, Henry Cloud describes them, because the Bible uses that term, as evil. I've met very few evil people in my life. Perhaps a more helpful way is thinking about people who are toxic. Toxic in a workplace, toxic in a relationship, toxic even in a family or marriage. Very simply, Cloud says there are people who want to hurt you simply because they want to hurt you. And you can only deal, according to Cloud, with these people in one of three ways. And he quoted the title of a pop song. He said, you deal with these people with lawyers, guns, and money. Now remember, Cloud is an American, and that's particularly appropriate for that context. It may not be appropriate to ours. But what was fascinating was what happened next. 
Cloud said that sentence to a conference of thousands of church leaders from around the world. And he said to us, each of you can now think of faces and names in each of those three categories. People who are wise, people who are foolish, and people who are evil or toxic. He said there are people in your relationships, your spheres of influence, people on the staff teams in your churches, people in your churches who fall into each of those three categories and you have thought of their names and faces as I've been speaking. There were about 8,000 people at the conference and there was a lot of nervous laughter in the conference hall. And perhaps even now, as you've been listening to me, as I have outlined those three different categories, different faces and different names have come into your mind. People in your workplace, people in your friendship groups, even people in your families or household. And perhaps you need to think how you can deal with each of those people differently, but I wouldn't recommend lawyers, guns and money. Well, where we pick up the story of Nehemiah is where he is facing people who want to hurt him simply because they want to hurt him. In chapter 3 that Paul looked at last week, he described the beginning of the reconstruction work on the walls of Jerusalem. Nehemiah has been asked to be allowed to go to the city of Jerusalem. He's taken a tour of inspection where he's seen how bad the damage and the ruins are and the rubble. And he's gone round and he's seen the extent of the work that needs to be undertaken. In chapter 3, different sections of the wall are allocated to different groups. There's actually about 39 groups in all. And it takes all sorts of people. There are priests and Levites and temple servants, goldsmiths, merchants, officials, individuals and families, masters and servants, men and women. All are given a job to do rebuilding the section of the wall nearest to where they live and therefore have a personal interest in the job being done well. There are eight different sections that are described in chapter 3, places by the different gates into the city. The fish gate, the old gate, the valley gate, the dung gate, that was a really popular one to be assigned to, the fountain gate, the winter, the horse and the sheep gates. But there's somebody who already isn't happy. We meet a guy called Sanballat, and it's a fantastic name for a baddie in a story. Sanballat, he first appears in chapter 2, verses 10 and 19. He's the governor of Samaria, representing and overseeing the people north of Jerusalem. They're ancient enemies, enemies of the people of Israel, together with Arabs, Ammonites and Ashdodites. Now this group of people do not want Jerusalem to be rebuilt, refortified, and given the capacity to become prosperous again. And as the story unfolds, their anger begins to grow. So they're described in chapter 2 and verse 10 as being very disturbed. By chapter 2 verse 19, they're mildly amused. By the time we pick up the story in chapter 4 and verse 1, where we're looking at it today, they are greatly incensed. Literally, the Hebrew means that Sanballat's nose becomes hot. It begins with just Sanballat, then a guy called Tobiah, an Ammonite, and Geshem, an Arab, form an unholy alliance. And by chapter 4 and verse 2, Sanballat has brought along the Samaritan army. Things are escalating quickly. 
and it will escalate still further with repeated invitations to summit meetings designed specifically to slow down the rebuilding process. There'll be open letters of opposition, slanderous accusations of treason against the king, and even an assassination plot on Nehemiah's life. But how does Nehemiah respond to the different types of toxic influences and taunts that come across from Sanballat, Tobiah and the Samaritan army? Sanballat begins in verse 2 by referring to the feeble Jews. He questions the ability of the Israelites to finish the task. The numbers don't add up. Despite the allocation of the different gates, despite everybody being involved, this is an enormous rebuilding task that surely seems beyond a group of people like, the, like this. Secondly, he says, verse 2, will they restore the wall? They don't seem to have the necessary knowledge and technical skills. And thirdly, will they offer sacrifices? I.e., isn't their faith a waste of time? Where is their God now? What's the point of praying? And with each question, with each taunt, with each accusation, there is an element of truth to it. Their numbers are small. They aren't trained engineers, stonemasons or bricklayers. And the city and the temple are in ruins precisely because God, this God that they believed in and prayed to and offered sacrifices to, because that God allowed the city to fall and for the people to be taken into exile. By verse 10, there are rumours doing the rounds of how tired the people are and how big the piles of rubble have become. The reality is that when an accusation or a taunt or even a simple statement echoes a fear or a reality that deep down we're all too aware of ourselves, it is much easier for it to get past our defences and to dent our confidence or even our faith. Nehemiah's response is simple, passionate and straightforward. It is a very angry prayer, verses 4 and 5. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. He knows God can do that because God has already done that to the people of Israel. And there, here comes this devastating verdict and request. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. How do they respond? They pray, but then they channel their anger and their energy into practical action. We're told in verse 6 that the people worked with all their heart. The taunts and the jibes from Sanballat and Tobiah and the rest just simply goad them on to do the work even quicker and more effectively. The rebuilding continues, the opposition grows more angry, the Israelites pray and post sentries, and while some people pray, Others lay stones and bricks and cement. And eventually by verse 17, there is this incredibly powerful picture of each person working, as it were, with a trowel or a tool in one hand and a sword or a spear or a shield in the other. At different times, different groups of people are praying while other people are working. But even while people are working, they're also on the defensive and on the watch out for any opposition. And God answers their prayers as they work, but also as they build. 
It is no either or, some people who pray and some people who work. Prayer and activism go hand in hand. It's not either or, it's both and. Well, how does that apply to us? Well, firstly, where are there toxic people in our lives that simply need to be recognised for what they are? People that you know, who actually you need to remove from your sphere of influence. People perhaps who are just out to hurt you because they're out to hurt you. They may not be bad people, but you've tried over time to say how their behaviour, how their attitudes is affecting you. They've refused to listen. They've minimised it, they've denied it. Perhaps in some cases they've even been the ones who have shut down or ended that relationship. But maybe for some of us there are people still in our lives, in our workplace, that we need to confront carefully and honestly and lovingly. But if they don't respond, if they don't show any signs of changing, maybe the time is getting near or has come already where we simply need to end that relationship. Perhaps as a, an incident where we are being tempted to doubt what God is saying to us. That was one of the taunts that Sanballat gave towards Nehemiah and the workers. Somebody questions our faith. Somebody questions our ability or our knowledge to do a particular task or job. What's the point in praying? What's the point in being a Christian? Maybe we're tempted now to give up because the reality is that many of us feel very tired. Just like the people in Nehemiah's work teams who were feeling exhausted with this task of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Many people in our society, many people perhaps in our workplace, many people in our sphere of influence, us, are feeling exhausted just now. Lockdown number two here in Scotland, although it's number three I think down in England, Lockdown in, in Scotland number two just seems particularly difficult. The weather's hard, homeschooling seems more difficult. We can't go out to the park, we can't go out for a walk in the same way. It's snowing, it's dreek, it's horrible, it's January, it's nearly February. Summer and spring seem a long way away. And we've been doing this now for 10 whole months. And we had that devastating news this week of 100,000 people who have now died with COVID as a result of this pandemic. If you listen to the news cycle again and again, there is just story after story after story that is bad news, that's hard, that's sad. It's getting to that point where perhaps it's not that healthy to keep on listening to that news cycle again and again. Or perhaps there's a need for each of us to reach out to other people and ask them to pray for us. While we're working, we need them to pray. Or perhaps there are people that we need to be praying for while they work. Maybe if we're angry, frustrated or tempted to give up, can we channel that energy, just as the people in Nehemiah chapter 4 did, to work with all their heart? And to perhaps get people around us to help us and encourage us, as well as to work with us. Nehemiah doesn't get distracted or discouraged because he keeps his eyes on the prize. And the prize is the rebuilding of the wall and the regeneration of the city of Jerusalem. We follow Jesus, who also knew what it was to weep over the city of Jerusalem, 
but who fixed his eyes on the cross, and who despite opposition, doubt and death, physical and spiritual as well as emotional exhaustion, overcame because of what was at stake, the rescue and redemption of humanity and the whole of creation. So this week, as things are difficult, as things are hard, as we're tempted to feel discouraged or exhausted, as we are tempted perhaps to listen to those toxic voices who say there's no point going on, who say there's no point praying, there's no point continuing, let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, perfecter and pioneer of our faith. Let's pray and work and recognise that Jesus is praying for us and working with us and through us even now. Let's pray. Father, we recognise that this is a hard time, that many people in our society are feeling frustrated or angry, exhausted or tired, and we need your help. We need your Holy Spirit to refill us, to refresh us, to re-envision us with what is important and what is at stake. Father, deep within our inner beings, deep within our souls, would you pour your strength, would you pour your life, would you pour your hope and would you pour your peace and love that we might live for you, that we might work for you, that we might pray to you this week with lives that make a difference. Lord, help us to keep on going, even though it's tough, just in the way that Nehemiah and the whole workforce that was helping to rebuild the walls overcame that opposition, even though it came again and again and again. Thank you that in the person of Jesus, we have somebody who has triumphed over evil, triumphed over death, and who is able to lead us even in victory. Help us to trust you and look to you this week. In the name of Jesus. Amen.